For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right. Kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, if you turn in it to the book of 2 Samuel, that is in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel. Okay? 2nd Samuel chapter 7 is where we're at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's in your order of worship. Uh, I invite you to follow along there. If you don't own a Bible, there are a bunch on the back table we'd love to give you. It's our gift. Take that, please. Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of those eerie times where... You know you're supposed to eat uh, a lot, and you watch a lot of football, and sometimes uh, you, it can be a struggle, right, to come into Thanksgiving thankful. Sometimes we have family rituals that help us do that. Maybe you go around the table, and everyone says something they're thankful for, which if you have small children, is always pulling teeth, because uh, they don't really want to talk, or they'll say something crazy. Um, but Advent, I've found, is a helpful way to begin thinking about thankfulness. What is it that we are thankful for as Christians? And I know some of you are thinking like, Jesus? Yes, that's the right answer. But what does that even mean? You see, Advent is a season of longing, as Jason mentioned. It's a season of longing of of, of a time for us to enter into the experience of those who were originally waiting for for the coming of the Messiah. And it's a season for us to be reminded that we too wait for His coming when he will come finally and fully to right the world. He has come, and for that we are thankful. And yet he has not yet come again. And so we are still in a period of longing. So this, this year, this year we are looking, uh, we're spending the next four weeks, actually five, because we'll do Christmas too, looking at the promises, uh, or, or rather the, the expectation of a king. Maybe, maybe you didn't know this, that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, Right? Uh, Christ is actually, uh, it means anointed or king. And so the Christian faith isn't just about the coming of a savior, it's about the coming of a king. A king who will, who will rule the world and, and the whole of the Old Testament whispers the promise of this king. And so this year we're going to look at several tellings of that promise to help us come into Christmas eager for what Christmas is about, thankful in fact for what Christmas is is about the coming of our long-awaited king, the one who would set the world to rights. So if you have your place in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses, should be 12 uh, through 16, not 11 through 16. Okay? 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16. This is God's word. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. 
And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we ask your blessing. Would you, would you Holy Spirit, come shine a spotlight on God the Son this morning? Who is, was, is, and, and ever will be our long-awaited King? Would you create, if it's not there, that longing in our hearts for his coming again? And would you convince us that it is his, in his coming that we will flourish as people? Lord, let everything that Jesus has done come to the fore. And let the one who speaks fall away, Lord, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak, speak as you did to Samuel, because your servants are listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. We have a ton to get to this morning, so I, I just want to jump right in, if that's okay. We're going to be looking at this, this passage in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at um, a king and his kingdom. We're going to look at a king and a temple. And then finally, we're going to look at a king and a rod, okay? So a kingdom, a temple, and a rod. Really simple. Let's, let's get started by looking at the king and a kingdom, first with his throne. Look, before you look at verses 11 and 12, though, let me set the stage a bit. If you're not familiar with this passage, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are really about the rise and the reign of a guy by the name of David. You may have heard of him. He killed a really tall dude with one stone. It was a big deal. Um, and we've, we have littered our children's Bibles with images of him as a small child doing this. He probably was not a small child when he did that, by the way. A young man, probably, but not a small child. Um, David and Goliath, this is King David. David has ascended the throne. He has been confirmed as king over all of Israel. And at this point in the story, he has brought the Ark of the Covenant, which traveled with the Israelites in the wilderness. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, which was, it was God's covenant with them. It told who he was, what he had done, what he's asking of them, and then blessings and cursings. So all of that was God's covenant with them, and it carried those. And David has brought the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, which is the tent that it dwelt in, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital city, the imperial city, okay? But David has found it unacceptable that the God who took him from the field tending sheep to the throne of Israel should be living in a tent while he dwelt in a palace. And so he decides, I'm, that's not okay with me. I'm going to build him a house. When you hear house, read temple, okay? I'm going to build him a house. And God, God uh, you know... He, who reads the intentions of everyone's hearts, sends to David the prophet Nathan. And he sends him the prophet Nathan to tell him that, in fact, David, you're not going to build me a house. No, that's not going to be you. In fact, God says, I'm going to build a house for you. Not meaning at that point a palace, he had one of those, but a, a, a line, an heir. And then comes this prophecy that the Lord will establish David's house and that God will raise up his offspring who will come from his body and establish his kingdom. And so what this begins 
is what is called the covenant with David. You heard me say when we did our baptism that we, we talk about the covenant of grace. Under the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, the covenant of grace was made... I'm getting ahead of myself. I get excited about this stuff, so I'm getting ahead of myself. We don't, we don't really have time to flesh this out completely, but in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is the chapter in the Bible where everything goes to pot, right? In Genesis 3, when God, when, when God is finally confronting the fact that his people have sinned against him, he makes a promise. And that promise is, I'm going to fix this. Genesis 3.15, he says, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to, he tells the serpent that he's going to deal with sin in the world and rescue his people. And so he makes, he's making a covenant, a promise-bound relationship, and it is based purely on grace. And that covenant, the covenant of grace, is administered in multiple different ways in the Old Testament, but it's all the same covenant, okay? Uh, So you have God's covenant with Noah. Then later you have God's covenant with Abraham and Moses and David. And finally, what's prophesied in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, is fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, But all of it is under one umbrella called the covenant of grace. And so what we see here, what God is talking about with David, is God's plan for redemption by grace through faith working itself out. This is part of the, the, the plan, the working of itself out. So, what's going on there? Well, ultimately, what's happening in this promise is God is promising not to abandon David or his family or remove them from the throne as he did with Saul and his family. I don't know if you knew this about the ancient world, but it was a pretty tumultuous place. Uh, Game of Thrones had nothing on the ancient Near East, right? It was, it was this place where if you were on the throne, there was a target on your back. And people were going to try and kill you to take your throne. It happened all the time. Intrigue, power grabs. It was, it was, it was a miniseries. But God is telling David that this is not going to happen with his family. That he will establish his throne forever. Forever. Not just like, you know, for your lifetime, even your kid's life. No, forever. In the near term, this promise points to the fact that God is going to establish one of David's kids by the name of Solomon. He's going to put Solomon on the throne. And Solomon will, in fact, be the one to build the temple that David desired. More on that in a moment. But this promise points beyond that to an even greater kingdom. You see, the language here is important. Uh, what, what The word that the ESV translates as offspring, you see that? In verse 12, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Literally, that word should be translated seed. But we don't ever use that word except when we're talking about farming, so they don't use it here. God says, I will raise up your seed from your own body. Okay? Now, follow me if you can. Because this is super cool and also really important. Remember that chapter where everything goes to pot, Genesis 3? The promise that God makes there is he tells the serpent that he will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Then in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to, in fact, raise up a seed for him, though his body is good as dead. It's like 100 years old. You're going to have a kid. This promise to David isn't simply to make sure his family stays on the throne, though it is that. It is that. Look, David, David held, David's family held the throne in Jerusalem the entire time that, there, that, that Jews were in control of Israel. Okay? It's not just that, though. The promise was that through David and his family, the great redemption of the world that was promised in the garden, that was reiterated to Abraham, that all the world would be blessed through him, that that was coming now, not just through Abraham's family, but through David's. 
was going to come through a king. Which is weird to us. We're American. We're often tempted to think that kingship is not the ideal. Right? As a matter of fact, American, uh, American readers of the Bible have often seen that when Israel asked for a king from God, that God was really upset with that. When in fact he wasn't. He was upset that they wanted a king like everyone else had, not a king like he wanted. Uh, but, but this is, you know, God's not upset about this. The scriptures are really clear that humanity, that we were made for a kingdom. That we were made for a kingdom. Not a, not a sanctified anarchy, or democracy for that matter. In the beginning, God created humanity to have dominion, to rule over creation. Now, this wasn't a dominion of exploitation. It was a dominion of service. Humanity was created to rule as God's stewards, as his image. But the problem is, and you all know this, right? We sinned. We turned away from God. We betrayed him. And when we did everything broke, a kingdom of service became an oxymoron. I mean, even as I said that, that his kingdom wouldn't be of exploitation, but of service, half of you were like, what is that? Exactly. Because humanity still rules and still rule one another. But that rule, because of sin, became a rule of coercion, a rule of violence. A rule of exploitation. Even Solomon's kingdom. Even Solomon's kingdom. If you read the Bible. With all of the privileges of God's presence. His care. His word. Even giving Solomon intense wisdom. Even Solomon's kingdom couldn't get beyond this. Because Solomon, like us, was messed up. He was a sinner. Every son of David after Solomon followed a similar pattern. The kingdom of God seemed a long way off. That is why the Psalms and the prophets reflect on this promise as something yet to be. They were waiting not just for David's son, but his Lord, as Psalm 110 tells us. The one who would sit at God's right hand and finally make the world right. Because you see, Solomon was but a sketch of the greater king and the kingdom that God intended, an eternal one. For the kingdom, as God intended it to come, for humanity to return to its place as a serving steward of creation and of one another, the king would have to be free from the power of sin. And the kingdom would have to be eternal. Did you notice that? That language over and over and over again? Forever? Forever? Like it was kind of redundant at that point? For the kingdom to be forever, the king, again, would have to be would have to be free from the power of sin's curse, which is death. And the New Testament claims boldly that Jesus is the answer for this longing. That baby born in Bethlehem, the one that we, always, that we sing about, that we think about, the cute little baby Jesus in his golden fleece diaper, as Ricky Bobby said, like that baby is the one who was without sin and the one whom death had no power over. Jesus is the seed from David's line. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, who would be the blessing of the world. And Jesus is the seed of the woman who came to finally deal with what had caused our brokenness, what had caused evil in the world, our sin. And so to finally restore us to the kingdom we were meant for, a world without sin and suffering and injustice and death, a world that Jesus promises to return to bring in its fullness for all who have acknowledged, them, acknowledged him as their king, Jesus was born in a manger. That promise, though, doesn't just speak of the throne, but also a temple. Look down at verse 13. God says, He, that is the seed from David's body, will build a house for God's name. 
Like I said before, this entire promise to David was prompted by a desire for David to build a temple, right? To build a temple. That's hard for us uh, as Christians, especially as American Christians. The idea of localized religious space is difficult. We meet in a gym. And it's actually rather easy for us to imagine that God doesn't, isn't into temples. But we have to understand how this, how this worked. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were both, they were central, not just to the religious life of God's people, to their very identity, and to their social life, their day-to-day life. And so the tabernacle and the temple was God's, uh, the place of God the, where his special presence dwelt in a way that he didn't dwell anywhere else. And it was his special dwelling place in the midst of his people. It was the place where worship, the worship that God commanded, took place. And it was the place where social life was regulated. If you've ever, and I, you know, look, unless you've done the read through the Bible plan in a year, or were a very zealous new Christian, you've probably not read the book of Leviticus a ton. But if you were, you would see words like clean and unclean all the time. And you're like, what is that about? Clean and unclean was a way where social relationships were, um, were regulated. Social life was regulated at the temple. This idea of being clean and unclean. This periodic alienation and return of God's people that happened all the time that everyone went through. And the temple was also the place where reconciliation between God and humanity took place. We get that sacrifice. But also the place where reconciliation between people happened. If you and I had a beef with each other, what we would do is we would, we would do our best to reconcile. We'd go to the priest. We would make sacrifice. And then we would eat together because when you eat together at a table, you say we're not enemies anymore. We're family. David's desire was to build a temple that was permanent. Not a mobile tent that you had to pack up and move every few weeks. Instead, a structure worthy of the God of the universe. But notice what God doesn't say here. He does not say, David, that's silly. I'm omnipresent. I don't need a temple. God doesn't say that. He doesn't say that such a thing shouldn't exist. He doesn't say that the resources of my kingdom are better spent on other things. Instead, God tells David it's simply not going to be him that's going to build it. It's going to be his seed. Right? The point here is that God is promising to David not only that his seed will have a throne, but he will build God's temple. He will build God's house here on earth. The king will be the temple builder. And this is something that's not forgotten. That's a promise that God makes here. It's certainly fulfilled in Solomon. He does build the temple. And yet long after the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians... God's people looked for a king to rise up and rebuild a temple, a place for God's name. Some of you will know through the Christmas story the name Herod, right? King Herod, who built the temple in Jerusalem. He was not Jewish. But his purpose in building the temple was so that people would see him as Jewish. In fact, they would see him as their king because the king is the one who builds the temple. So the the idea of the king building the temple became a central piece of the hopes of God's people. That when God finally came to make the world right again, which he would, when he did that, this temple would be restored. God's special presence would dwell on earth again. But like the last aspect that we saw, this promise points beyond itself to a greater temple. 
to the Old Testament and all of the Jewish hopes after that looked to the king as the temple builder. But why? It's because of this. The, the, idea, uh, the idea of a temple builder isn't just about Israel and her hopes. That would be okay. It'd be a neat little thing. Maybe we'd sit here and go, oh, isn't that a little cool? Okay, so what? It's also about the hopes of the world. You see, when God finished his creation, that garden, Eden, was a place for him to dwell. You remember the, what the scripture says? Some of you are familiar with the passage that God walked with in the cool of the day in the garden? That was the place where his special presence dwelt. He walked with us. Can you imagine that? Walking with God without fear or shame or guilt. But our sin removed us from that place. Because in a sense, because we rejected his presence, God gave us what we wanted. And he removed us from it. And we had to leave the garden. And so what we see in the temple of God in Israel was the renewal of Eden, the place where God's special presence dwelt. But even that wasn't good enough. Because in the beginning, the garden was never meant to stay in one place. What what was the original call to Adam and Eve? To go forth, to multiply, to take dominion over the earth. That The whole point of the garden was that it would spread over the whole world so that the whole earth was the place of God's special presence. Because his dominion was there. And again, the bold claim of the New Testament is that this is exactly what Jesus has done. That Jesus is what the temple could only be a shadow of. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, uh, it's the fourth book in the New Testament, when he's talking about Jesus, he talks about the Word. He says, the Word became flesh, and most of our translation says, and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, though, is not, (laughs) it's not that simple. The Word is actually tabernacled, which is a very strange way of saying dwelt, except that it's meant to point back to this reality. Jesus is the temple of God. But it's more than that. See, when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, his followers, Christians, those who trust in Jesus, that are looking to him by faith, united to him by faith, the church began as a collective to be understood as God's temple. So it is through the church that God's special presence will cover the world. It's through the church that what was intended through Eden will come to pass. That God's presence will be everywhere. Jesus fulfills what Solomon's temple, frankly, what no temple of stone ever could. You see, the temple was never good enough. The temple was never good enough. Because it's situated. It's still just one place. In one area. It was too localized. It was only a picture. Which is why that idea is now obsolete and has been replaced. Jesus is the temple builder that God had promised. Jesus is the temple builder that God's people had waited for. But that temple was not made of stone carved out of the ground. It was made of living stones. So that God's special presence is taken throughout the world. Do you realize that's what's going on when the church gathers to worship? When we come together to worship, when God calls us into this place, when we bring the church into this gym, What do you think is happening? It is the place where God's special presence is dwelling. That is why we believe that worship is such a big deal. 
Because even worship is about what God is doing. Even that's not primarily about us telling God how great he is. It's about what God is doing to fulfill his promises in the world. So it speaks of a king. It speaks, it speaks of a temple. Lastly, it speaks of a rod. First, it does so with this talk of fatherhood. Look down at verses 14 through 16. God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, stop there. Um, interestingly enough, this would not have been very foreign language in the ancient Near East. I know we often see this and we say, ah, see, that's definitely talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is God's one and only son. Yes, that is true. However, in the ancient Near East, the king is often called the son of the god, whatever deity they worshipped. If, if you were Babylonian, you were the son of Marduk. I think is like the coolest god name ever. Marduk just sounds awesome. But um, if you were a king somewhere else, you were the son of that god. Claiming sonship was a way for kings in the ancient Near East to solidify and theologically justify their rule. Let me say that again. Kings in the ancient Near East used the idea that they were the chosen, privileged one of God to theologically justify their rule. Very similar to the idea of divine right in medieval Europe or like our political parties, which claim either the backing of the traditional idea of God or the more contemporary God of historical progress. See, we now claim to be either on God's side or that our opponents are on the wrong side of history. Both are simply claiming that God is actually justifying our ideas. Isn't that interesting? So then a claim to sonship to the divine was culturally another way of saying king. But that said, there is an important distinction in what God is promising here and what was normally true in the ancient Near East, and that's the idea of discipline. You see, God's fatherhood was not simply a means of validating Solomon's rule. That's the way it would be in all of the other ancient Near Eastern kingdoms. If they got... if his people would get upset with him. He'd say, look, God's son. God told me to do this. It became a way of justifying sin. God's fatherhood doesn't simply mean validating Solomon's rule. It also speaks to the care God would take to shape him. See, he continues. He says, when he does wrong, I'm going to punish him with the rod of men. See, God's, God's fatherhood was not meant... Simply, was, was not meant to justify his rule so much as to flourish the king. And this is founded on the idea that the king would do wrong. Not that everything he did would be justifiable because he has connection to the divine. In other words, this promise, this particular promise, reckons with the reality of sin. But at the same time, it reckons with the reality of grace. Because he continues, But my love will never be taken away from him. What God is saying is that his love will ultimately win out. Sin won't disqualify the kingdom or the kingship. And, un, and like every other aspect we've looked at this morning, this points to a greater hope than simply the continuing line of rule. See, 2 Samuel 7 is not the first time that someone was understood as God's son. In Genesis chapter 5, okay, five chapters into the Bible, Adam is described as having a son, a son named Seth. And it describes the son as being in Adam's image and likeness. 
the exact same terminology that is used to describe Adam's relationship with God. And this is why Luke, in his account of Jesus' genealogy, calls Adam at the very end. You read the ge- I know none of y'all read the genealogies, right? Like, why am I going to read that? At the very end of Luke's genealogy of Jesus, it calls Adam the son of God. Adam was the first son of God. The one made in God's image and likeness. But Adam sinned, which is the Bible's way of saying he betrayed God and turned away from him. Okay? It doesn't so much speak to the breaking of a moral code as it does to the breaking of a relationship. And because of his sin, all who came after him were born into a state of brokenness. That's what the church calls original sin. Don't get hung up on the terminology. All it means is that Adam turned away from God, and because he turned away from God, he ruined the rest of us. He ruined us. Now, we would have done it too. Don't go harping on Adam. He was the best we got. But, still the reality. And so this is a way of saying that we are born broken and in need of rescue. That we, that we sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. Right? And this is why the idea of discipline of the king was needed in the first place. But that idea of discipline of the king was a promise that had more in store for it. You see, for this kingdom to be eternal... For this seed to rule forever, something would have to be done with sin. Well, why? why? Because death entered the world because of sin. And so the only reason, and Jason said this last week, the only reason that death has any power is because sin is still present. If sin is gone, then sin's consequence is gone. Our betrayal of God required judgment. And again, the outrageous claim of the New Testament is that Jesus came to bear this judgment. A punishment that he didn't deserve. Because he did no wrong. And yet was punished with the full force of all that sin deserved. Because Jesus, son of God, had to do the same thing that Adam, son of God, did. Which is to stand in our place. To represent us. Just as Adam stood and represented us before God, such that his betrayal became ours, so also Jesus came and represented us. Such that Though he did no wrong, he died for the sake of our sin. He was judged in our place. But he also stood so that we might be credited with his faithfulness before God. He was punished with the rods of men, though he he didn't deserve it. But God's love was also not taken away from him. Jesus rose again so that the house of David, the kingdom of could truly endure forever. That's why all this forever talk is in here. The kingdom that God promised, the kingdom that began in the garden that said, this is what is going to be, that that kingdom was one where death could no longer have effect because sin, the sin that powered it, had been paid for. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the king that God had promised, the one who would establish God's kingdom And restore humanity's place as it was before sin. The one who would build God's temple such that his presence was spread over the entire earth. That his dwelling would finally be with humanity. And the one who would bear the discipline that we deserve and be the new Adam to bring life. Where the old one one brought only death. Which means that Jesus is both the embodiment of God's promise and its means the means of its fulfillment. He is the king. 
And so over this course of this next four weeks, five weeks, as we lean into the celebration of his coming, I, I ask you, what do you do with this king? What will you do with him? Don't be fooled. He rules even now. I know you look around and it doesn't seem like it. But this is why the church proclaims that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. He reigns even now. So what will you do with him? Will you continue to claim that you are the captain of your fate, the master of your soul? Or will you repent of your ways to try, of, of trying to avoid God's claim on your life? Will you turn to Jesus as your king, the one who comes to rule you with love? The scriptures are clear. The scriptures are clear. That the things of this promise, the things this promise points to, a kingdom of flourishing for all people, all different kinds of people, the presence and smile of God in an answer to our brokenness, even the very fatherhood of God, that all of these things, all of these promises, that I don't care if you're a Christian or not in this room, they sound pretty good. The scriptures are clear that those things can only come through Jesus. Apart from him, there is only futility, alienation, and ultimately judgment. And so this Advent, as we look to celebrate his birth and look again to his return to consummate his kingdom, to consummate this kingdom that he, he began in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Let us all bring our lives under his kingship and look to him as our long-promised king. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would, Lord, at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, all those things that I just said can, be, can sound like so much background noise to us. Because these, these longings, these promises of a, of, a, of a kingdom where we can flourish, where humanity can finally flourish as humanity, where, where your smile and your presence are with us and, and where our brokenness is dealt with, we hear lots of counterclaims to that all the time. That's going to come through being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. That's going to come through us just willing our guilt away. That's going to come, uh, that's going to come through self-help and self-improvement. And so, Lord, I pray that during this season, these four weeks especially, you would, you would convince us again that it is only through Jesus that these things can be. That Jesus is not your plan B or C. <laughs> he was the plan that you began at the very beginning to not only deal with our sin, but to bring us, to flourish us as people and to bring us into the life that we were made for. So Lord, give us grace to abandon all those other things we look to and, and in turn again to him this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen.